You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Good to see you all here today. How are people feeling? I know we're all a little bit tired, but we'll get through this. Um, I always am undecided if I'm going to wear glasses or not. Um, but in any case, today I have the honor of talking to you about heaven and hell. Um, fun, fun topic for today. And I, I don't think we did a sort of live meet and greet on the stage, but as it was posted in the comments, um, the question was around, have you ever had any experience evangelizing someone or being evangelized? Um, and I have been on both ends of the experience, unfortunately a bit more of the former than the latter. Um, when I was a kid, you know, the evangelism was like such a huge focus, saving souls from hell, etc. And I, looking back, I am actually very grateful to my high school friends for still being friends with me. Um, I had this girl I had a crush on the softball team who I tried to talk about the afterlife through AM chat. For those of us who remember that medium, um, I had a friend, good friend of mine who was Muslim, who I tried to like debate on the merits of the Holy Quran. Um, just, it's a miracle. We're still friends today. Um, but, you know, even more kind of incredible in some ways is the fact that I did all those things as a very socially awkward, shy high school student. Um, it's quite incredible if you think about it. Like, I was able to, and not just me, many people will kind of been able to push yourself outside of your comfort zone to do something kind of socially mortifying for the sake of an invisible thing that happens after you die. And I think how this training works really well is it relies on metaphors. So how many of you have heard of the kind of car accident metaphor when it comes to evangelism? So it's sort of like you're walking with your friend and then your friend goes on the street and they're a little ahead of you and this car comes rushing and you see your friend does not, does not see it and of course, what do you do? You yell, stop. And so that's supposed to be a metaphor for our lives today. Your friends who are not believers in Jesus, the training goes, uh, are about to go to hell just like way worse than a car accident. And so if you really care about your friends, you got to yell stop. And you got to share the good news, you got to evangelize, etc. And I think these trainings really work because how do you get someone to believe in an invisible thing? You use a metaphor that is visible, that is real, that's concrete now. The problem with metaphors, as beautiful as they are, is that they distort our reality in a certain kind of way. They help you know, they kept me from seeing, like, say, my poor high school friends as complex human beings with beliefs and faiths, and they were just kind of turned into pending victims of a cosmic car crash. And I, I talk about this because I think this metaphor has very much kind of dislodged me from living in the present and kept me always in the future. I'm not here to kind of say that heaven and hell does exist, does not exist. Um, I think the point is that we don't know because we're, none of us are dead yet. Um, and, but I can say, having done a little bit of a study on this and why I think you all are forced to listen to me on Sunday service, is I've done a bit of work and I think I can safely say that the heaven and hell that we think of today, which is when you die and you believe in Jesus, you go up to the sky and you're in a paradise and if you don't believe you're burning in hell, is not actually really rooted in scripture, particularly um, in what Jesus has to say. For instance, the Hebrew Bible does not really talk much about the afterlife. Jesus talks a lot more about the kingdom of God than he talks about heaven or hell. So how do we get from there to here? 
So that's going to be a bit of my sermon today. I won't be able to cover everything. Um, I'm going to save most of it, uh, half of it, for the Theology Thursday session with Emmy, um, which is going to be awesome. And the text I'm relying on today, because I know some of you all like to kind of double-check what I'm saying and make sure I'm citing real people, is Bart Ehrman's, um, I believe it's Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. So you can check that book out yourself. So let's start with the Hebrew Bible. So in the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, the main place that people say they go, that is written that they go after they die, is a place called Sheol. S-H-E-O-L. Um, Sheol is not hell. Sometimes it's translated as such, but scholars think it's most likely just an alternative technical term for literally the physical place you go, like the grave, the pit. And so here's a quote from Psalm 30, which is pretty representative of most of the references to Sheol. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? I really particularly like the psalm because you can very much see the psalm as negotiating with God. The psalm is like, God, I'm about to die. So, but if you save me, if I die and I become dust, who's going to praise you? So if you want the praises to keep coming, you have to keep me alive. Um, and I think it's kind of a genius negotiation tactic, potentially. But you see the kind of worldview underlying this verse, and I think throughout the Hebrew Bible, is that when you die, you become dust, which sucks. No one really wants to be dust. You become nothing. But there's no talk about, and then if you're good, you go to heaven, if you're bad, then you're tortured, what have you. Now, there are some references towards an afterlife in the Hebrew Bible, very few. But for the most part, um, they refer not to an individual afterlife. I'm going to quote Bart Ehrman here. Much of the discussion of the afterlife in the Hebrew Bible focuses not on the fate of the individual at death, but instead on the ultimate fate of the entire nation. So how many of you are familiar with Ezekiel 37, the passage of the dry bones? Kind of. I don't have my glasses on. Okay, cool, Angela. Um, uh, so it's a passage in which it's kind of this really cool scene, almost from like a sci-fi movie or a fantasy movie, where God brings the prophet Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. And um, God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to it. And all of a sudden, the bones, you start to see flesh appear in them, sinew. And then God says, like, prophesy breath into them so the wind blows into them and they come alive. And it, it's like a whole army of people. It's pretty cool. And, you know, there are two ways to read this. Two weeks ago, I talked about the literal versus spiritual meaning of a passage and how the ancient interpreters prioritize the spiritual meaning. I think the same is true here today. The literal meaning is obviously Ezekiel resurrected a bunch of dead bones, um, which is pretty awesome. The spiritual meaning is that this is a metaphor for the restoration of the nation of Israel. You see, at this time, Ezekiel is writing right about the time of exile. And he's writing this to give his people hope that although right now life sort of sucks, it feels like you're dying inside, there will be a time in which God will restore our people, where we're no longer colonized, where we're no longer dispersed, but we're together. And I'm not just making this up because you can just read the next verse and that's literally what God says. Then God said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. But I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. So you hear, it's quite clear, I think, from this passage that you're not talking about literal things here. It's a metaphor. The bones represent the house of Israel. People are saying their bones are dried up. 
as in they're not saying like I got dry bones, they're saying my spirit is gone. And so God's like, I will breathe new life into your bones. I will restore your people. So once again, the story not about individual resurrection as much as the corporate and national resurrection. Now, what happens after this little scene? So God tells um, people, look, I'll restore you. You just got to follow my laws, follow my statutes, worship me, and I'll make sure you're good. Like, no one's going to conquer you anymore. You're going to be my people. Everything's smooth sailing from here. Like, spoiler, it doesn't happen. Um, they do follow the Torah. You mentioned two weeks ago they, with the book of Ezra, where they read it out loud. They write it down for the first time. But they get conquered again. And then by conquered again by a different set of people. And there's a little revolt called the Maccabean Revolt where we get Hanukkah, and then they're conquered again by the Romans. And after all these conquests, I think the Jewish people start to be like, what? You said, God, that if we follow your laws and your statutes, we, this wouldn't happen again, that we would be restored as a people. Where are you? Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer if you're a God who's in control? And I think that's a, a very real question um, and really profound. Um, and this is kind of one of the main points I want to make during the sermon, which is that I think our ideas of heaven and hell originate for our, from our inability to make sense of our suffering today, our inability to cope and make sense of suffering today. Because what is a really human way to cope with like, bad things happening? You say it'll be better tomorrow. Or it's, it sucks now, it's not just, but it'll be justice tomorrow, or the day after, or the day after. And what happens if you're dying, there's no justice, well then there's the afterlife. And so basically around this time period, you see Jewish thinking develop to talk not just about corporate resurrection, but about human resurrection. The idea that there might not be justice in this life, but there will be justice in the afterlife. And so I think it's a really important point to kind of sit on because it's easy to just kind of make fun of evangelists and, you know, my high school, college self who trying to evangelize other people. I think the truth, I think all of us want there to be some accountability after we die, right? Because we see really rich, powerful people get away with so much bad things, cause so much harm to other people, and there's no accountability on earth. So maybe, you know, we don't want them to be like eternally tortured forever, but like something, you know, like 24 hours of tickling, like some kind of uh, retribution, perhaps. Um, we can be creative. And I, I think this, these questions about disparity, inequality, and justice are really magnified in this pandemic. I was just reading the story um, in New York Mag, published by Sarah Jones, a journalist who actually grew up evangelical in kind of Appalachia and Virginia. And it's really beautiful. I highly recommend reading it. There are a lot of Bible verses in there, actually. Um, and she talks about her grandfather passing away due to COVID. And I know a number of us have had loved ones, friends, family members pass away due to coronavirus. And she talks about how at his funeral, she felt grief, yes. But more than anything, she felt pissed off. Her grandpa died when he was 86. And in the last year of his life, he was in and out of elder care. What happened was he had this persistent infection. His daughter, her mother, would admit him to the emergency room. They would conclude, you need longer-term care, correct? And so they would admit him into a sort of elder care facility. The issue was his insurance only covered 20 days of long-term care or short-term care. 
So after 20 days, even if his condition got worse, he had to be discharged because they couldn't afford more. And then his infection will flare back up, so they had to readmit him to the emergency room, and the cycle will continue. And each visit to the ER, each visit to the care facility, introduced a new risk of COVID. So in one of his last visits, he had a roommate with a cough. And a few days later, was diagnosed with COVID-19. So when Sarah was writing his essay, she was like, yes, coronavirus killed my grandfather. But what really killed him as well is our healthcare system. Um, which prioritize p profit over people. Our politicians who say, you know, for the sake of reopening the economy and our stock market and GDP, we just have to accept that certain lives will be sacrificed. They're sort of sacrificial, disposable category of people, like the elderly, the sick, those who are poor and who cannot, you know, work from home, or those who have to, like, or live in crowded housing where you can't really socially distance. These are people who just accept that, you know, they'll just have to pay the price for the sake of our economy. We cannot envision any other way of taking care of people, um, unlike some other countries right now. And so I think these questions around where is justice in this place, where rich and powerful people get away with punity, where the weak and the vulnerable, the elderly, are literally dying, where is God in all of this? These questions drove Jewish thinkers during this kind of post-biblical period to essentially create the devil. Not that the devil doesn't quite exist in the Hebrew Bible, but the idea of this supernatural being who is really powerful, who is working against God and what have you, that actually sort of develops post-Hebrew Bible. And the belief was that God is all-powerful, yes, but they're devilish, wicked beings who are working against God and God's people. And that's why when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will return the world to order. The devil will be destroyed, and the kingdom of God will be restored. And there'll be justice and order and peace, what have you. Uh, it's a little bit like, and this is a, kind of a dumb analogy, but I'm going to do it anyway. I used to get in fights with my younger siblings, and my younger siblings are more stronger, better, more violent than I was. And I would just kind of like get beat up, but I would be like, wait till mom and dad get back. <laughs> They'll restore order. They never really did. It was like peacekeeping, not peacemaking, to use Jonathan's phrase. But that's kind of like the hope and aspiration for the Jewish people. They're like, this undoubtedly minority has been conquered so many times. It's like, okay, wait till the Messiah gets back. Well, everything will be okay. And so that's the hope um, that was placed upon Jesus. Here is Bart Ehrman. The Jewish apocalyptic, apocalyptic view said that even the pain and suffering are rampant now, especially among the people of God, an end is coming soon, a time when God will reassert himself, intervene in history, and overthrow the forces of evil. So you notice Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, many, many times. It appears 162 times in the New Testament, way more, I think, than talking about heaven and hell in specifics. Um, and in fact, Jesus' first line recorded in the oldest gospel, which is Mark, talks about the kingdom of God. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And here it is again in Luke 17. When asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God will not come with observable signs, nor will people say, look, here it is, or there it is. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And I really want to stress this. Although, yes, the kingdom of God does involve the afterlife and what have you, Jesus' emphasis is that stop looking for the future. The kingdom of God is here, it is at hand, it is within you, it's in your midst. So it's not about escaping when the world ends to something in the sky. 
is about being present here and presently transforming an earth into a just and generous and peaceful uh, world. And what's importantly is that this kingdom of God includes not just Israelites, but everyone. Here Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So that's a pretty big innovation, a pretty big change from sort of the Hebrew Bible um, for the most part. The other big change, and I'm saying this partly because of the sermon, is that when the Messiah returns, the belief was not just that the existing alive people would be judged, but that the dead will be resurrected and they will be judged as well as to whether they're in the kingdom or not. Um, and so this part, this is where resurrection starts to shift from just being about a spiritual metaphoric resurrection of Israel to individual resurrection, something that happens to everyone, all people. And I can talk about that a bit more of the specifics around Jesus' point of view in hell, and I would recommend listening to Jonathan's 2016 sermon on this topic, and I'll, I'll address it more in Theology Thursday. Um, but I want to emphasize what I think Jesus emphasized, which is that Jesus is not principally concerned with what happens after you die. Jesus is actually concerned with present life, with present injustice and suffering. That's why he keeps emphasizing the kingdom of God is here now. And so I think believing in this kingdom of God is, is meant to, to engage us in the present moment with what is going on now instead of withdrawing and saying, this whole earth will go up in flames anyway and we'll escape to heaven. This, as you can see, I'm piggybacking off very nicely of Jonathan's sermon last Sunday. And like I said, I'll save it for our Theology Thursday as to talk about how we got from this vision to like our modern ideas of heaven and hell. But I want to just make a few last points um, before I conclude. One is, I, I think when we ask these questions, you know, how do we get here? How do we get heaven and hell? Does it really exist? Does it not exist? Um, I do think the meaning of a question changes a lot depending on who asks it. So if someone comes to me and says, is there justice or judgment in the afterlife? And there's someone who's gone through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of injustice. My response is going to be really different than if someone's asking me this who maybe is in the center of power, who has resources, who's comfortable. Maybe they're just asking this out of a kind of a theoretical exercise, or they're asking this because they want to find an excuse to police people's behavior or their behavior. I want to say these questions are not abstract, they're not in a void. Um, and very lastly, I think, you know, what do I believe? If, if someone were to ask me, which I think maybe some of you are, um, thus I'm speaking. Um, and I would say, yes, a part of me definitely wants to see people like, pay for it in the afterlife. You know, I want to see some kind of justice, some kind of accountability. But I think the better part of me acknowledges that, going back to our sermon last week on the atonement, justice really is not punitive, it should be restorative. It includes both the oppressed and the oppressor. And I would include myself in both categories, that there are parts of me that need, absolutely need to be transformed and need to repent. And so... I hope that whatever the afterlife looks like, that the justice will include the full restoration of all of this, including people like me. The second point I think I, I want to kind of end on is, I think I choose to believe in the resurrection. I'm going to borrow this phrase from Jonathan, which I, which I like very much. It may sound crazy, obviously, to believe that our bodies will resurrect and you know, decrepit as they are. They'll just come back to life. Um, but, you know, it sounded crazy in the first three centuries of the Common Era as well. The Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, but not in the body. In fact, the body was a thing yet to escape. The body was mortal. It was a source of suffering, illness, body odor, 
you know, like all things you wanted to get away from. And so the Greeks made fun and mocked Jews and the early Christians for believing that resurrection included the body. And so our early Christians uh, would respond to this. And in, as a side note, this kind of division between soul and body is, is sort of very alien within Judaism, which really saw the soul and body as one. Um, so, so when the body dies, the soul dies, and then when the spirit resurrects, so does the spirit. And this is important quite politically because later on the line, when you have colonialism start happening, um, that starts to be justified because it's seen as, as white Europeans are seen as rational, as people with souls, and people of color, particularly African people, are seen as enslaved to their body. So these seem like fun ideas, but then it get very real about uh, 1,500 years later. Um, but it's all to say that early Christians, when they're responding to being made fun of, basically, they said this. In particular, there's this anonymous author of First Clement, his book, it says, you know what, I think, the author writes, the physical resurrection today is not all that incredible. Just look around us. When the sun sets, the sun rises the next day. Dead seeds fall to the ground, they produce new plants, leaves, as we're in season of fall right now, fall to the ground, becomes soil that fertilizes new trees and new saplings. When we are asleep, we're unconscious for eight hours, and somehow we resurrect and we come back into our bodies. Why would the physical resurrection of the dead be all that different? And I think that's the question, I think, for all of us today. We're in the midst of so much death with this pandemic, with police brutality, um, but my challenge is like, why not look for new signs of life amidst the death around us? We don't know what will happen after we die, knows heaven and hell. But I think one thing we do know is that if we want to be followers of Jesus, we are called to follow Jesus in ushering in the new kingdom of God. And folk think about what acts of peace and justice and love for our neighbors can we bring about in, in this life? What acts of resurrection, basically? And I think for some of us, we might have to look inward for these signs of new life. You know, in the pandemic, I've talked to a bunch of you, you've been saying you're spending a lot more time with yourself, more alone time, more time to confront inner demons and things you kind of distract yourself with as per usual. And there might be some things that come up that on earth that you have to figure out what you want to put aside and what you want to, and what you want to die, essentially, and what parts of self you want to breathe new life into. Maybe there are some habits or coping mechanisms you developed as a kid that were helpful then, but not really helpful now as an adult. Um, and I think whatever your ideas of heaven and hell are, I think a pretty good working principle is, do these ideas detach you from reality? Do they distort the present reality around you? Or do they help you grow in love and empathy for God, for your neighbor, and for yourself? I think it's a pretty good working criteria for evaluating uh, most theological beliefs. I'm going to end on a short story. Um, I took this job at this church about last, this time last year. Uh, and I happened to see my parents right on time when Jonathan told me, you know, me and Mackenzie, we want you to come on as staff. Um, we were walking on the beach, and I was like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to work at this church. You know, it'll be a part-time, you know, what have you. And it was, I was excited. And I've been in this church for a long time, for five years. And my parents, I knew their dream was always for the kids to be in ministry. Um, so I kind of shared it with them a bit tepidly. We'll see how they responded. And my parents paused and they said, um, what does your church believe about heaven and hell? <laughs> about salvation? Uh, 
we know their stands on, on the gays, but what about this stuff? Um, and they start interrogating me a little bit, you know, like, well, how can your boss permit you to be in a relationship with someone who's not Christian and still be on staff and still preach and all these questions? And we went back and forth for a while, and then at, at some point my dad sort of said, you know, Sarah, I just want to say this to you as a father. Um, I think the road you're on theologically could lead you to hell. And it was painful to hear it then, and still a bit painful to say it now. But I think looking back, I just feel sad for my parents, and sad for my dad in particular, that the two things that bring me so much joy in this life now, you know, my partner, my work at this church, are the two things that give them so much anxiety and concern over my internal destination. And it's sad to me that their beliefs have distorted them blinded them from the present reality, from the very present joy I have, from the very present newness of life, from the very present kingdom of God. And I think, you know, I've made a commitment to myself, and I hope you make a commitment to yourself, whatever it is, that no one, no metaphor, no devil, no what have you, can ever, should ever steal your joy. So a challenge to all of us, maybe not challenge, maybe it's an inspirational question. So what signs of new life might be right under your nose that maybe you're blind to right now? What advances of the kingdom of God um, that maybe you just need to pay attention to right now that maybe are not so obvious? Because it could really make a difference um, in how we live. I'm going to pray. Dear God, my brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ, let us pay attention to the new work, new life, new joys, new resurrections you bring about in all of us. Let us not be blind to the ways in which your spirit is moving, the ways in which your kingdom is advancing. Although there's so much um, that might cloud our sense of hope, cloud our sense of joy, I pray that we hold on to those things. That those things will be permanent and unshakable. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.